2, we're reading verses 37 to the end of the chapter, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to the end of the chapter. Brethren, these are indeed the very words of God himself, his holy inspired word. Let us hear the words of the Lord together. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and unto the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and unto all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation." Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread and house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we again are so grateful, so thankful, and so humbled that you would indeed call out your people call them out, the ecclesia, call us out together, and, and, and the calling out is indeed a glorious thing, and yet the ecclesia involves the calling out and the gathering together, and this, Father, is where we are this morning. We thank you, Father, for that. We thank you for the Lord's day, for you have indeed in Scripture declared a day that is indeed yours, the Lord's day, Sunday, the first day of the week. And Father, we thank you that when just a little while after the preacher comes and expounds your word unto us, that we indeed are blessed to hear it, that indeed we know and understand, even as we heard yesterday, Brother Paul, that it will go out and it will indeed accomplish its purposes. And after that, we we get to gather together around the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, and be reminded and proclaim your death till you come. And Father, what a, what a glorious blessing that is to each of us and to all of us here this morning who are indeed your children. And Father, we pray for those who are lost, the lost sheep. As I always say, sheep are always sheep. They never become goats. The sheep are just lost till you find them. And Father, we pray for the lost sheep who may be here this morning, that maybe today is the day through the preaching of your word, that their eyes will be opened, their ears will be unstopped, their hearts of stone will be melted into a heart of flesh, and the mind that's an enmity and unable to even grasp spiritual things will be regenerated, and maybe today is the day that they will indeed come, and they will hear the shepherd's voice. And as we heard again yesterday, Brother Dean, they will indeed follow you. And Father, we thank you for that this morning. May you be blessed, may you be glorified, may the the Lord Jesus Christ be lifted up, that again, men, through the working of the Holy Spirit of God, the regenerating work, and those of us who have already been regenerated, that we might look upon the Son, and again, realize and understand what he has done on our behalf. Thank you now, Lord. Be with the preacher, be with Andrew as he comes. May he preach with power and boldness and unfetteredness, just Preach the word, brother, we pray, and ask all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It's always a privilege to be able to gather with other believers uh, than those whom one normally gathers with and fellowship and spend time with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and so it's a blessing and an honor to, to be here, and I'm, I'm grateful for the elders of this church to invite me to speak and to preach God's word this morning. 
Um, if you weren't here with us yesterday, uh, my name is Andrew Heath, and I serve as one of the elders at Mountain View Baptist Church in Roswell, New Mexico. So we came up a, a little bit of a ways up to, up to North Dakota. Uh, Roswell, of course, is the, the famous alien town, but as I said to the group yesterday, I promise we are earthlings, <laughs> and we come in peace. Um, and actually, we are very familiar with this area of the states. Um, I'm originally from the state of Minnesota. My wife is from Montana, and we lived in Montana for about eight years before going down to New Mexico. And while we lived there, we would often take the 12-hour drive from Billings, Montana to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and drive through uh, Bismarck here. And this was kind of the middle-of-the-way point, fill up for gas in Bismarck or Mandan and continue on our way. Um, so we're familiar with this area, and we're glad to be back. In fact, we were able to visit um, Capitol Heights before a couple years ago, and it's good to be back with you all this morning, and most importantly, to be considering the Word of God. This morning, we'll be considering, uh, at least in part, this text that Pastor Mike read for us from Acts chapter 2, um, which, in which we see... Uh, the life in the early church and early believers. Uh, before turning there, though, uh, consider this um, unfortunate but true reality that oftentimes there's a disconnect, isn't there, between one's theology and practice. That is, sometimes there can be a disconnect between what we believe and what we do. Uh, this was illustrated to me shortly after we moved down to New Mexico, which was almost 10 years ago now, um, nine years to be particular. Uh, we moved down there, and one, one day after, after being there for a couple weeks, I said, you know, I just, I just want to go talk with people about the gospel. So we were living in a small apartment at the time, and, and I went down the residential neighborhood near our apartment and just went to the first house and knocked on the door and, um, again, was wanting to... Uh, evangelize and share the gospel with folks. And, and the very first house I came to was this gentleman who, who answered the door and, uh, and said, yeah, I'm a Christian, as I begun to talk with him. Yeah, I'm a Christian. In fact, I was born again 20 years ago, he said. Now, I was very excited to hear this. I thought, well, okay, this man knows the Lord, and he was, he was born again. The Lord gave him a new heart, and he loves the Lord, and he's trusting and following Christ. And so I asked him, I said, well, where do you go to church here in Roswell? And he says, oh, nowhere. I haven't gone to church for, for that whole time. I was born again 20 years ago, and uh, maybe went to a church once after that, but that was about it, and I've never been into a church ever since. And I began to talk with this man and dialogue with him to see if there was a clear understanding of the gospel and, uh, and find out where he's at. And what it appeared is there was this great disconnect between what he believed, that Christ changed his heart, that he had a new heart, that he loved and trusted the Lord Jesus and was following him, and yet, on the other hand, what he practiced, which was, I, I don't care for the church, I don't care for believers, I don't want anything to do with them, illustrating this great gap, this great disconnect between his theology and his practice. Now, in reality, my neighbor's view is not uncommon. I think you probably know and realize that even up here in these neck of the woods, that, that this kind of thinking is not uncommon. In fact, uh, according to a recent survey, I think it was done in 2022 by Ligonier Ministries, um, they do one every couple of years called State of Theology Survey. And in that survey from last year, 55% of people they surveyed disagreed that every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. So 55% of the people uh, disagreed that every Christian has an obligation to join a local church, that one can and um, might as well be a Christian and yet not, need not be part of a local body of believers. In that same survey, 66% similarly agreed that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending the church, a local church. Now, I'm, I'm a big proponent for worshiping God with your family. I think family religion and family worship needs to be revived in our day and age. Um, 
And that as, as fathers, we ought to be leading our families and teaching our children, catechizing them and uh, worshiping God with them and shepherding them and our wives and ministering to them God's word. So I'm definitely a proponent for uh, worshiping God with your family. However, not that it, should, that it is a regular or that should, that, that should replace a regular involvement in a local church. And yet, as this survey points out, 66% of people agreed that, that that's a legitimate replacement. Worshiping God alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending a local church. For those who profess to be Christian, though, this reveals a dangerous disconnect between what they believe and what they practice. Right? To say, I worship God alone or with my family, or I'm born again and trust and follow Jesus, but I have nothing to do with a local church. That reveals a dangerous disconnect between what one believes and what they practice. A disconnect, listen, that can happen even among us who have come to believe the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace, as we considered in yesterday's conference here, is... The doctrines that teach that salvation is a gift of God from beginning to end based on his gracious and sovereign choice. He owes salvation, grace, mercy to no one, and yet in his mercy has chosen to save a people for himself on the basis of his sovereign choice and atone for their sins by the blood of Christ and will effectually call them to himself and keep them until the end. Those are the doctrines of grace. And truth is, this kind of disconnect between what one believes and what one practices, between professing to be a follower of Christ and yet have nothing to do with the local church, that kind of disconnect can even happen among us who have come to believe those very doctrines. However, as we see in Acts chapter 2, turning to that passage now, meaningful involvement with and a commitment to a local body of believers is the natural result of conversion. Let me say that again. As we see in Acts chapter 2, in this text that Pastor Mike read for us a moment ago, meaningful involvement with and commitment to a local body of believers is the natural result of conversion. Notice that in this text, in Acts chapter 2. You might remember, it's in this very chapter, um, that Peter, the Apostle Peter, preached on the day of Pentecost. You remember that, that followed the Spirit being poured out on the disciples as Christ promised. And, uh, and Peter, following that time, uh, preached a sermon to observers who said, what is this going on here? Are these men drunk? And he says, no, we're not drunk. This is the gift that the Father promised following Christ's ascension. And he's poured out his spirit on us in a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And following that, that Pentecost sermon of Peter's, it says there in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 37, that many people who heard this sermon were cut to the heart and asked, brothers, what shall we do? You see, at that moment, they recognized that they were um, among those who had crucified the Messiah. These were Israelites in Jerusalem, Jews who had participated in the crucifixion of the Son of God, and they're just coming to the realization of that. And it says they were convicted, they were cut, they were pierced, or literally stabbed to the heart, and turned to the apostles and said, what shall we do? Following this, um, we see that Peter exhorts them to repent and be baptized, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit themselves. He goes on to exhort them some more, and then we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, that those who received the word... Peter's word, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. We might ask, what were they added to? Well, obviously, that, that would be the church. The church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, this, this new group of believers following the death and resurrection of Christ, um, unto them has been added now 3,000 souls who were 
identified as believers through baptism. Following this, it says they were devoted to the life of the church. That's what we read in verse 42. They devoted themselves. And among other things, there's four things listed. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Here we see life in the early church and that those who were convicted and converted by the power of the gospel were following baptism, were added to the church, and they were devoted to the life in the ministry of the church. Again, illustrating this point that meaningful involvement with and commitment to a local body of believers is the natural result of conversion. This devotion to the the body, the fellowship, the church really worked itself out in listening to the teaching and preaching of the word. That would be the apostles' teaching. It was it worked itself out in being devoted to the fellowship of these other believers. Uh, they were devoted as well to the breaking of bread, which uh, many believe is a reference to the Lord's Supper. So already in this text, we see them being baptized and participating in the Lord's Supper, the ordinances Christ gave to the church. They're devoted to that, as well as to prayers. And it's as a result of all of this that the church is built up. Awe came upon every soul, it says, as the apostles worked signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the church continued to grow. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I don't know about you, but I read that section of Scripture, and, and I just think that is one of the most um, beautiful uh, descriptions of what it looks like to be part of Christ's body, a local church. Now, we know from the book of Acts itself, this church, it's, this church was not flawless. Sometimes I think we idealize the early church, and we say, wow, we just need to do everything they did exactly because they, they didn't have any problems. Well, continue reading the book of Acts on your own later, and, and you can see whether or not that's the case. They, they certainly did have some challenges. There were disputes. There were arguments. There was conflicts, um, just like in today's church. So, so there was in the early church. So, so we know they're not perfect. They're not flawless. They still struggled with sin, even as a church. But nevertheless, what we do see is that Peoples whose hearts and lives were changed by the power of the gospel, they were made new creations in Christ, were then, that resulted in a meaningful involvement in the body and a commitment to a local body of believers, a devotion to the life and ministry of the body of Christ, the church. This devotion to an involvement with a legitimate, organized, local body becomes an an implicit assumption and expectations of Christians throughout the New Testament. So following the book of Acts, as we read through the New Testament, what we see is that Christians um, are assumed to be and implied to be uh, devoted to and involved with a legitimate, organized, local body of believers, whether that's in the city of Jerusalem or Corinth or Rome or Ephesus or so forth. And this is evident in a number of ways throughout the New Testament. As you read through the New Testament, we see that believers are exhorted to love and serve one another. You can't do that if you worship God alone or with your family at your house alone and are not part of a local body. You're not loving and serving and exhorting one another, uh, the other brothers and sisters in Christ. Believers are also commanded not to forsake meeting together. They're exhorted to participate in the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. They're exhorted to observe the ordinances like um, receiving the sign of baptism, if indeed they're in Christ and participating in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. They're exhorted to exercise church discipline when necessary. And then finally, in the New Testament, believers are also exhorted to submit to and follow biblically qualified leaders and help fulfill the Great Commission. All of those things are exhortations to believers throughout the New Testament, indicating that meaningful involvement with and commitment to a local body of believers is the natural result of conversion. As it says in the Second London Baptist Confession, I don't know if you guys have a 
have read it or have an appreciation for it, but at our church, the Second London Baptist Confession, in fact, in the last couple of years, has become our confession of faith or statement of faith, which is a reformed um, Baptist confession of faith written back in the um, 1600s by uh, some, some uh, reformed Baptists at that time. And anyway, in, in that confession, they, they helpfully summarize this, saying under, in, in their chapter on the church, saying, quote, in the execution of this power, wherewith Christ is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto himself, through the ministry of his word, by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience, which he prescribes to them in his word. Those thus called, he commands to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requires of them in the world. Dear friends, all of this communicates the believer's responsibility for a meaningful involvement with and commitment to a local body of believers. Well, it's in light of all of this, and in light of the conference that we considered yesterday on the doctrines of grace, it's in light of all that that this morning I'm going to be addressing why the doctrines of grace should lead to a commitment um, to a local church. Why the doctrines of grace should lead to a commitment to a local church. That's what I've been asked to address, and, and I think it's wise and important that we do so in light of yesterday's conference. And, and I think that's wise and important for two reasons, because one, sound doctrine is meant for life and godliness. Listen, it, uh, sound theology, sound doctrine is incredibly important, and that's what the doctrines of grace are about, thinking rightly and biblically about salvation, about God's sovereignty and salvation, and that's incredibly important. But the Lord's will is not that we just think rightly about him and about salvation so that we can have big heads or be really smart um, or, you know, think more rightly than the church down the street. That's not ultimately the Lord's purpose. Ultimately, the Lord's purpose for you and I is that we think rightly about him and we think rightly about Christ and about salvation, ultimately so that we might ourselves be conformed under the image of Christ. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, Paul says at one point, indicating to us that while we are to grow in the grace of knowledge of God and of Christ, ultimately that is to lead to sanctification, growth in love for God, growth in love for his people, growth in holiness, growth in reflecting our Lord Jesus Christ, becoming more like him. Sound doctrine, then, is meant for life and godliness. The doctrines of grace are meant to transform your heart to love God and love his people such that you live out the Christian life, growing in conformity to Christ, growing in love for God and others, and growing in godliness. And so it's important that we consider this question because the Lord... Lord's will is not just that we have a right understanding of the doctrines of grace, but that we actually are conformed as a result more under the image of Christ and grow in our love for him and in holiness and in godliness in our conformity to his will. So sound doctrine is meant for life and godliness. That's one reason why I think this is helpful to consider. And the second reason is this. The second reason why we should consider why the doctrines of grace lead to a commitment to the local church is because, listen, the church is really the apple of God's eye. The church, as we'll see, is the bride of Christ for whom he laid down his life, whom he loves in a unique and special way. You know what this means? This means that the church of Jesus Christ around the world and local churches like Capitol Heights Baptist Church that, that belong to him, that preach the gospel, that believe the gospel and preach his word are really are really where God's heart is at and really where God's eye is at. It's not Rome. It's not the Oval Office. It's not any other super important place in this world that people might think of. It's It's the church. It's his people, which consists of local churches like this one around 
the world. Dear friends, this is important then to consider because the church is the apple of God's eye. The Lord loves the church. The Lord died for the church. And the church is his redeemed people whom he loves and treasures and cherishes. What a sweet and wonderful thing. And that's another reason why we should think about why the doctrines of grace lead to a commitment to the local church. So with all that said, here are three reasons um, why the doctrines of grace should lead to a commitment to the local church. Here's three reasons I'm going to give to you, and then we'll look at from Scripture. Um, I think there's probably more reasons that we could think of, um, but I'm a Baptist, so I have a three-point message. <laughs> Here are three reasons why the doctrines of grace should lead to a commitment to the local church. First of all, the local church is God's chosen people. Second of all, because the church is Christ's blood-bought bride. And third, because the church is the Spirit's means of calling and preserving the saints. Or we might say the church is the vehicle of the Spirit's means of calling and preserving the saints. So one more time, that'll function as our outline. Why the doctrines of grace? Why should the doctrines of grace lead to a commitment to the local church or a local church? One, because the church is God's chosen people. Two, because the church is Christ's blood-bought bride. And third, because the church is the Spirit's means of calling and preserving the saints. First of all, then, because the church is God's chosen people. The doctrines of grace should lead to a commitment to, the, to a local church because the church is God's chosen people. Whether it's because we're independent-minded Americans, and I said I was from here, so I know how, I know how we think up here, right? <laughs> we're, we're, we're the type of people up here, which is, we're pretty independent, right? We like our privacy, we want the government to stay out of our business, and, uh, and we'll take care of ourselves, right? Um, so whether it's because of that, just because we're independent-minded Americans, or because we're anti-hierarchical Protestants, whatever the reasons, sometimes we only think of salvation, and therefore election, in individualistic terms. Sometimes we only think of salvation and election only in individualistic terms. But listen, throughout Scripture, it is clear that God chose um, individuals and saved individuals, yes, but in view of gathering a people for himself. Throughout Scripture, we see that God chose individuals and saved individuals in view of gathering a people for himself. We might look at Abraham himself, right, who was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And, of course, God made a covenant with him and great promises to him. But even then, what was among those promises? I will make out of you, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, a great nation. I'll make out of you a people, in other words, that people comes to formation later in Exodus chapter 19 when God delivers um, Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, out of Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai. He makes a covenant with the people of Israel. And he says this in Exodus 19, starting at verse 3. To them, he says, uh, that the Lord called to him out of the mountain, Moses, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. By the way, that's grace, which even in the Old Covenant preceded the law, right? Preceded the giving of the law. God didn't come to the people of Israel. Sometimes we think of the Old Covenant as, uh, as based on works, it wasn't, right? God didn't come to the people of Israel and say, obey the Ten Commandments, then I will redeem you. No, it was the other way around. He said, I, I redeem you, and now I'm giving you my law to walk in my statutes and my ways. So that's what he says here. I, I, I brought you out of Egypt to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Note those words. We'll see that in one other place here shortly. 
You'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that's what God was doing. He was calling a people to himself. We see this even in the Old Testament. And he chose them. Of all the nations, of all the people, it was based on God's choice. He chose Israel, not because of their own worthiness or righteousness or anything in them, but because of his grace. He says that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen to this passage where we see the concepts of election, in this case, the election of Israel, um, and God gathering a people to himself come together. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 8. Here the law is being given to the people of Israel a second time before Moses' death. And he says in Deuteronomy 7, starting at verse 6, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he has chosen you. He goes on and says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of Israel, or excuse me, from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I love this passage, right? We might be tempted to ask sometimes, well, if God, God, why would you choose me? Why did you love me? And it appears using this language, right, that the Lord's reason, I, I love you. I set my love, love on you because I loved you. Yeah. Well, Lord, that doesn't make sense, but but it illustrates this great truth, right? That ultimately it was because of God's sovereign choice in love that he elects and chooses a people for himself as he did with Israel. We see this as well in the New Testament. Consider one passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Here we see it applied not just to the nation of Israel, but ultimately to the church, which I would argue is really what Israel was a type and a shadow of. Ultimately, Israel was a type and a shadow of the church of Jesus Christ, which consists of all those who walk in the footsteps of Abraham, who share the faith of Abraham, and all of those whom God has chosen to be his people. We see in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, There it says to all believers, all those whom God has chosen to be his people through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there the Apostle Peter says unto them, but you, 1 Peter 2.9, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Does that language sound familiar? What was promised to Israel on the condition that they were obedient is fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ all those whom God has ultimately chosen unto himself and called to faith in Christ. It is they, because of the work of Christ, who are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then look, at he goes on and says, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, Peter says, But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Echoing God's words in Hosea chapter 1 to Israel, but here applied to believing Jews and Gentiles, those whom God has chosen to be his people through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the point is this then. The the doctrine of unconditional election has this corporate aspect to it. Salvation and election is not merely, should not merely be thought of in individualistic terms, but it has this corporate aspect to it. God saves, chooses and saves individuals ultimately to be a part of a people, his redeemed people. Indeed, It is the ultimate result of God's choosing and election. This corporate aspect and dynamic to salvation and election is ultimately the result of election. For God chose us, plural, who believe to be a part of his redeemed people, 
to the praise of his glorious grace. And that people is the church. In fact, even later here in the book of 1 Peter, at the end of 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, 13, Peter will close this letter by saying, she who is in Babylon, who is also chosen, greets you. Well, the she there is a reference to the church, the church of Jesus Christ, who is chosen in Babylon, which is a reference to Rome. Dear friends, what this means is that uh, not that everyone in the visible church is saved, but it does mean that all the elect, all whom God sets his love and chooses to save on the basis of grace and draws to himself, are a part of the universal church of Christ. And yet, listen, this is manifest by a commitment to a local body of believers. In our day and age, it seems like there's this trend to say, well, I'm, I'm a part of the universal church, and, and that's all that matters. But listen, the expression of that, the evidence of that, the indication of that, is that one is part of a local body of believers. It's manifest by a commitment to a local body of believers, which is the visible expression of Christ's church on earth. Don't say, therefore, that you're part of Christ's universal church if you're not a part of any local church. There really is no grounds or basis on which you can claim that. The one gives evidence to the other. And again, as we see in Acts chapter 2, it is the natural result of conversion, of God drawing somebody to himself as he changes their hearts and gives them a love for him, a trust in Christ, a love for him, and a love for his people that leads to a meaningful commitment and involvement to Christ's people, a local body of believers. The knowledge that God elects and saves sinners, therefore, to be his chosen people, should lead to this close involvement with that people. If you are a part of God's chosen people, that naturally will lead to being involved with and committed to that people in tangible form. For listen, there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There just isn't. There's no such thing as somebody who is a Christian and yet has no care for or love for in their involvement with Christ's people. If God has elected and saved and chosen an individual, he has chosen them to be a part of his redeemed people. And so if God has chosen you and saved you and drawn you to himself, you know what that means? You are a part of his people. He chose you and saved you, not so that you might just live independently, in private, with your family, in your home, and live out your Christian life there. But no, he chose you and saved you to be a part of his people. Uh, we might think of it, I hope this is a, not a cheesy, I hope it's certainly not a, uh, a crude example, but it's as though, you know, on a draft of a team. We might say that, that individually athletes are drafted by, by the team they're chosen by, Right? but they're chosen and drafted onto a team, (laughs) right? They're they're a part of a team of people. Even if they're chosen individually and drafted, they nevertheless become a part of a team. So it is with Christians. God sets his love on somebody who is dead in sin, draws them to himself, saves them, and makes them part of his people, a team of people whom he has redeemed that they might love him and worship him and proclaim, as Peter says, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the first reason why the doctrines of grace should lead to a commitment to the local church is because the church is God's chosen people. Secondly, because the church is Christ's blood-bought bride. We saw this yesterday when we looked at definite atonement. That was the doctrine of grace that I was um, assigned to 
to address, and I did that yesterday and, and preached on the subject of definite atonement, that is, the teaching that Christ died to atone for his people, those whom God had chosen to save and, and whom the Father had given to the Son before the foundations of the world on the basis of grace. Christ died for them. And one of the primary texts that teaches this and that we considered is Ephesians 5.25. You might be familiar with this one. Husbands, no doubt, are always convicted when they read this one, right? Because here in Ephesians 5, after addressing wives, Paul turns to address husbands, and he says, husbands, love your wives. Well, how, Paul? How am I to love my wife? And he goes on, he says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here we see that Christ in particular loved the church, the ecclesia, as it was said earlier, and gave himself up for her. Here the church is compared to the bride of Christ. Husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loves his bride, the wife of the Lamb, as, as the church is elsewhere referred to as, whom he has loved in a way that husbands are to model. And listen, it is for her, Paul says in particular, that Christ ultimately laid his life down on the cross, that she might be holy and that she might be his. It is as though like a man who is pursuing a woman on whom he has set his love and desires to be his, have as his wife and know as his wife. He pursues her and is willing to sacrifice and lay down anything for her. So that's how Christ has loved his bride, the church, such that he pursued her and wooed her and won her and obtained her to be his bride by his own blood, to be his bride. As the old hymn says, and I cited it yesterday, I just think it's so beautiful, the church is one foundation. The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and he sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Contuals, um, we refer to those as the pastoral epistles, along with Philemon um, and Second and Third John. But the majority of the letters and books in the New Testament are written to local bodies of believers. They're not written to the church universal, um, at least in their first sense. They're written, written to the church in Corinth, the church in Rome, the church in Ephesus, and Galatia, and Colossae, and so forth. And in what we see in that is Christ's special love and care for local churches, who, although are flawed, are imperfect, and we see that as we read through letters, right? You know, the Apostle Paul is like, oh, you guys are struggling and flawed and imperfect in this way and that way, and you need to correct things. But nevertheless, we see the Lord's love in and through these letters, the very word of God, for his, for local congregations, like this one, like mine in Roswell, New Mexico, and like others. We also see this. We see the Lord's special love and care for local churches in the New Testament as well when we come to the book of Revelation. Revelation, by the way, was actually a, also a um, letter of sorts. It's apocalyptic literature, but it's an, also an epistle. And we see that in that it was written to churches, local churches. Revelation chapter 1 Verse 11, after seeing a vision of the Son of Man in His glory on the Lord's day when He's in the Spirit on the island of Patmos, the Apostle John is told in Revelation 1.11, write what you see in a book, which becomes the whole book of Revelation, John's vision which he sees, which he's writing, and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are seven local churches in Western Asia Minor whom Paul was to send this letter to. 
Now, I would actually argue that the word seven here, like most numbers throughout the book of Revelation, are to be understood symbolically, since, again, this is apocalyptic literature, highly symbolic. And so, really, we should understand this as a letter or a book written to all the churches, seven being the number of completion or fulfillment. And it's written, therefore, not just to these seven local churches, but to the church of Jesus Christ, both in the first century and in our century and until Christ returns. But nevertheless, these were local churches and congregations in the first century that Paul was writing to. And then what do we see in Revelation 2 and chapter 2 and chapter 3? That Christ has a message for each of these local churches. Messages in which he's identifying strengths and weaknesses. He's identifying their unique situations and struggles. He's exhorting them in specific ways. This is something that we've been studying closely at our church. We've been going through the book of Revelation. And uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll be, we'll be on that last message at the end of Revelation chapter 3 to the church in Laodicea. Um, so we've been walking through this portion of Scripture and, and have been looking at it closely as we've been going through the book of Revelation at our church back home. Um, and my point here and now is simply this, is that what we see here is Christ's special love and care for Local churches and congregations. Dear friends, though they're certainly not perfect churches, and you, re- you just read through Revelation 2 and 3 and listen to Christ, what Christ has to say, his message to all these churches, and you'll see that they're not perfect churches. In fact, of the seven churches, only two of them the Lord has no criticism for, only, only encourages them to continue in what they're doing. But all the other five, he says... You guys need to address this thing or that thing. And he has some criticisms and critiques for. But nevertheless, in and through the love and a care and a special concern and interest in and involvement to a local church. And this only makes sense. Because listen, for listen, if you love and value Jesus, you're going to love and value his bride. Imagine if I came up here this weekend and, and you guys treated me very nice and, and uh, got a place for me to stay and provided for my needs and met my needs. But then you said, hey, Andrew, we just want you to know that we're taking care of you, but not your wife. Because we don't really care for her. Well, what do you think I would say? I would say, listen, I, I, I was happy to be here. <laughs> but if you, if you don't love and value my wife, You don't love and value me because she is the love of my life. She's my greatest earthly treasure whom I love and care for. And I'm united to her. She's my bride. She's my wife. So don't tell me you love and value me and will care for me and and all that. If you don't love and care for my bride, if you don't love and care for her, you don't actually indeed love and care for and value me. And so it is with Christ's church, right? The church is the blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ. And so by no means can we say, oh, I love and value you, Jesus. You mean everything to me. But I really don't care for your bride. He would turn, he would say, if you don't love and value me, or if you don't love and value my bride, those for whom I died and shed my blood to redeem, then you don't love and value me like you think you do. Secondly, therefore, the doctrines of grace should lead to a commitment to a local church because the church, the church is Christ's blood-bought bride. Flawed and imperfect, though she still is this side of glory and ever will be till Christ returns. She is Christ's blood-bought bride. Third and last, an understanding of the doctrines of grace should lead to a commitment to a local church because the church is the Spirit's means of calling and preserving the saints. Or as I said earlier, we we might better say, the church is the vehicle of the Spirit's means of calling and preserving the saints. The doctrines of grace rightly teach the biblical truth that the Spirit effectually calls the elect to Christ. Um, I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I don't think we cited that verse yesterday, right? That, That the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who believe. But to those who are called, it is the power of God unto salvation. You see, 
And not everybody, not everybody sees the cross as the power of God for what it is. But those who are called do. And the Spirit effectually draws them to Christ and enables them, furthermore, to persevere to the end. By the power of the indwelling Spirit, He keeps them and preserves them and grants them grace to persevere. The doctrines of grace rightly teach those biblical truths. And yet, listen, we're not, I hope, those who deny that the Spirit does this in and through means. But rather, I hope we're those who recognize that the Lord and God the Holy Spirit accomplishes His will through means, and particularly the very means entrusted to the church and carried out by the church. And in particular, these means are the preaching and the teaching of the gospel of Christ and the word of God, as well as the means of grace. So we have the doctrines of grace, but really they should lead to an appreciation for the means of grace, which refer, among other things, to the preaching and teaching of God's word, the ministry of God's word. This right here, uh, while I'm a flawed and imperfect preacher and minister of God's word, um, God's word has power by which God sanctifies us, right? And the preaching and the teaching of God's word is one of the ordained means through which God sanctifies his people. This is why Christ can say in John 17, before ascending to heaven, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is through the truth of the word of God that he sanctifies us that he further teaches us, grows us in the grace and knowledge of God and of Christ and conforms us under the image of Christ and grows us in love and in godliness and in holiness and helps us to walk in a way that's pleasing to him according to the gospel. The other means of grace include baptism in the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate later. These ordinances are means by which the Lord presents or represents the gospel, visually helps us to see and be reminded of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. Furthermore, the means of grace include the fellowship of the saints, the ministry of the local church and the local body, and prayer, not just individual prayer in our closets, but corporate prayer together. All these things that we saw the believers engaging in in Acts chapter 2, right? The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and the prayers. These are the means of grace through which the Lord calls and draws people to himself and preserves and sanctifies and strengthens those who have been called. Through these means then, people are born again and the saints are sanctified and receive grace to persevere. Um, Yesterday I read briefly from the Canons of Dort, which was actually the, the document in the uh, early 1600s that um, those of a Reformed persuasion and, and that defended the doctrines of grace wrote and drafted to articulate these things. And among other things, in this very document, they describe that the Lord accomplishes his will in and through means, means that the church carries out. And so, for example, just listen to this paragraph under the heading, God's use of means in regeneration. They wrote, I think rightfully so and biblically so, as the almighty operation of God, whereby he brings forth and supports this, our natural life, does not exclude but require the use of means by which God of his infinite mercy and goodness has chosen to exert his influence. So also the aforementioned supernatural operation of God by which we are regenerated in no way excludes or subverts the use of the gospel, which the most wise God has ordained to be the seed of regeneration and the food of the soul. So the gospel is the means by which regeneration is brought about. Wherefore, they go on, as the apostles and teachers who succeeded them piously instructed the people concerning this grace of God, to his glory and to the basement of all pride, and in the meantime, however, neglected not to keep them by the holy admonitions of the gospel, under the influence of the word, the sacraments, and ecclesiastical discipline. So even now it should be far from those who give or receive instruction in the church to presume to tempt God 
by separating what he of his good pleasure has most intimately joined together. Note what, he's, what they're saying. They're saying we tempt God when we separate his divine decrees and ultimate purposes to save and elect and to choose a people, when we separate that from the means he has appointed to accomplish that end. Don't tempt God in that way. We don't divide both the ends and the means, but recognize that God accomplishes his purposes in and through means like the preaching and the teaching of the gospel and the word of God, like the ordinances, like church membership and church discipline and fellowship and corporate prayer. For grace is conferred, therefore, they go on to say, by means of admonitions. And the more readily we perform our duty, the more clearly this favor of God working in us usually manifests itself. And the more directly his work is advanced, to whom alone all the glory, both for the means and for their saving fruit and efficacy, is forever due. I could, for time's sake, I'll refrain from doing it, but they have another chapter under God's use of means and perseverance. And it's much shorter, but it essentially says the same thing. That just, God, just as God uses means, namely the preaching of the gospel, to cause people to be born again, so he uses means to preserve those who have been born again, and to sanctify them and to keep them unto the end. Dear friends, the point is this. As they recognized, um, God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And these means are very, to use their word, ecclesiastical in nature. God uses the preaching of the gospel and admonitions and the ordinances and ecclesiastical discipline and prayers and fellowship, these different means of grace. God uses those, which are very ecclesiastical and corporate in nature, to accomplish his end. The very means that comprise the life and the ministry of the local church, therefore, is how God calls people to himself. That's why... We who believe in the doctrines of grace should be all the more zealous to, when we leave here, preach the gospel to our friends and neighbors. That's why we don't conclude from the doctrines of grace, oh, therefore, I, I need not minister the gospel to those in the world around me. And furthermore, I need not be part of a local church. No, we don't believe that. Why? Because it's through means like these that the Lord draws people to himself and both sanctifies and keeps his people whom he has drawn until the end. The very means that make up the life and ministry of a local church. For it's in the context of the local church that the word is preached, the ordinances are administered, and the saints are built up. And so if we believe that the Spirit will effectually call people to himself, namely all those whom God has chosen to save from before the foundation of the world, if we believe that, and we believe that the saints will be preserved until the end, and that God will accomplish this through the use of the means that he has chosen, then we of all people who believe the doctrines of grace should give ourselves to those means. We'll, we'll want to preach the gospel. Why? Because God saves those whom he's chosen. And we'll give ourselves to the means of grace and to the local church. Why? Because it's through those means that God keeps me as we sang earlier in Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing, my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I, Lord, I feel it. My heart is still so struggles, so struggles with corruption that I am prone to wander from the Lord I love. And that's why I need the local church. God preserves me and keeps my ever restless and wandering heart by the means of grace that he has given to me in the local church. And that's the same for you if you're a believer. Third and last for the doctrines of grace should lead to a commitment to the local church because the church is the Spirit's means of calling and preserving the saints whom he will ultimately keep until the day of glory. For listen, this is the good news of the gospel that we read about even in that passage in Ephesians 5. That Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I'm not holy in and of myself. You're not holy in and of yourself. We have no hope of standing before a good and perfectly holy and righteous God on the basis of our own merits, right? But there's good news. That God in love sent a Savior. God in human form. The second person is the Trinity, His own beloved Son, who took on human flesh and became one of us and lived the perfect life we didn't and died the death we should have and bore the punishment and just penalty for our sins on the cross to rescue and redeem a people for Himself. The church whom He washes clean with His blood, clothes with His righteousness, That is all who, by God's grace, look to him in repentance and faith. Dear friends, does that describe you this morning? Are you looking to Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you been made a part of his people? Are you a part of his blood-bought bride? And part of those whom he effectually has drawn and will keep until the end, until that day when the church is presented to him in glory. If not, look to Christ. Turn, see your own sin and self-righteousness and turn and look to Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. That you might be justified before God through faith and faith alone in Christ. And may you be brought into the people of God and become a part of His church and not just His church universal, but may that be reflected in a commitment to and an involvement to his blood-bought bride. And commit yourself to those very means by which the Lord preserves and sanctifies his people. By way of conclusion, therefore, my question for you is this. Is there a disconnect in your life? Is there a disconnect like there was on that neighbor of mine down the street Is there a disconnect between your theology and your practice? Or have you come to see and recognize the Lord's love for his church? And that in redeeming you, if you're in Christ, he has brought you to be a part of his people. And he intends on keeping you through the use and the means of grace. By the grace of God, I pray that that's so. And that you yourself might be committed to and involved with a local church, if you're not already. With that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth and your word. We thank you especially for the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the good news that you save sinners, that Christ came into the world to save sinners like us who had no hope apart from you intervening and accomplishing salvation by your own arm. Thank you, Lord, for the good news that you've done this at a great cost. And help us never to forget this. That even now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord, help us to see and remember that that this salvation, this redemption, has been accomplished by the blood of Christ. For, Lord, you are righteous and you are just and you are holy and we have sinned and you cannot by no means clear the guilty, your word says. And yet, with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. And so how can you, a holy and righteous God who can by no means clear the guilty, show forgiveness and mercy to those who are guilty but by the sacrifice and the substitute of another? a perfect sacrifice and substitute, your very own son. Lord, we, as your word says, have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And would you help us to see and appreciate that cost and the glory of our Savior, who, though was in the form of God, humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and being found in human form, And in the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to rescue us. Lord, we thank you for him. 
we praise him and we thank you for his sacrifice. A sacrifice by which we who believe and we on whom you've set your love before the foundations of the world, not because of anything in us, um, have been brought a part of your church, your redeemed blood-bought bride. Lord, further, would you give us an understanding of these things and help us to love your bride as flawed and imperfect as she is this side of glory, like you love her and value your bride. And help us, O oh God, to be a people here who give ourselves to the means of grace that you have given to us, by which you keep and preserve and save people and sanctify people. Help us to give ourselves to those means that we might persevere ourselves unto the end in faith and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and for his glory. Amen.